it's so important for professional fundraisers to find something that they love, that they believe in. With And if you don't believe in it with all you have, I don't think that you can be as the maximum of your success. I think you can really maximize success if you can find something that you truly love and believe in. Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and change makers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In this episode, we speak with Lenny Meyer, Senior Vice President and Chief Development Officer at Norton Healthcare, and recipient of the Outstanding Fundraising Professional Award from AFP, the association's highest honor. Lenny has been leading the operations of the Norton Children's Hospital Foundation and Norton Healthcare Foundation since 2004, generating over $300 million in support, following key roles at the Center for Women and Families in Louisville, Caritas Health Services, University of Louisville Hospital, Care Tenders, and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She has received numerous honors during her career, including the Center for Nonprofit Excellence Art of Leadership Award, the National Conference for Community and Justice Humanitarian Award, the Presentation Academy Tower Award, and the National National Philanthropy Frank W. Pennick Founders Award for Excellence in Fundraising. In this interview, she talks about how her beginnings as a registered nurse in clinical care still inform her work as a fundraising leader today. Well, I've, I've been in my role 18 and a half years. It'll be 19 years in June. I am a nurse by training, which I think is somewhat unique, and to be the chief development officer in a large health system. But I worked 13 years in clinical care. And then moved into a nonprofit, a large regional nonprofit here in Louisville that served victims of domestic violence, rape, sexual assault, and family self-sufficiency. And a lot of my background in healthcare really came to play in that role. And as the executive director, I was obviously the chief fundraiser. And that's where I started raising dollars to support the mission of the center. Had an unbelievable run there, built two large shelters, dramatically expanded programming, and uh, really had moved the organization regionally and nationally, attracting national foundation money and federal money, and uh, was approached by our chief operating officer here at Norton Healthcare in 2004 to come over and lead the work of our children's foundation. We are a seven hospital system. We have six adult hospitals and five and one uh, freestanding children's hospital. And when I started my role, I came in just to the children's side. And two years in, I assumed responsibility for the adult side. I've been on a journey really through my career here for the last 20 years, and I'm now the senior vice president and chief development officer. So that that journey from the work that you were doing immediately prior to this, uh, I can see that connective tissue when you're talking about children. How has it been to move from that focus on kids and their vulnerabilities and their needs to something where you're really talking about the whole community's needs? I think the transition was okay in terms of mission. Obviously, I've had a passion for healthcare. I'm a nurse, so I had been in the trenches. The greater challenge really came from being in a small organization where I was the CEO, uh, 100 employees, eight locations, to a large health system with almost 20,000 employees and lots of service lines and physicians and providers. And the, the real challenge that first two years was around the development of culture and culture of philanthropy and developing grateful patient programming and 
beginning to really understand what healthcare philanthropy was like and how could we begin to engage the system. And, you know, this team has grown. I've grown. Uh, our revenues have grown. We moved from roughly $2 million the year I came to $42 million last year. And we're on par to do that again this year. So it's been exponential growth. Um, and, you know, I can't take credit for all of that because I've had an amazing team and a lot of support from leadership and our boards. And certainly I think we were unintegrated and underperforming 20 years ago if you would have benchmarked us against other systems or other children's hospitals. So now we're getting in par with the benchmark. I do want to talk with you about uh, your staff and and the growth of the team, and, which I understand also has a lot of longevity, and that makes it unusual um, in a very positive way. People who have stuck with it, stuck with you. Mm -hmm. That's been a common theme. It was a theme at the conference. It's a theme throughout the industry that there's lots of turnover and the cost to attract, hire, and recruit a professional uh, I've been here almost 19 years. I have many people on my team that have been here 10 plus years. Uh, two stewardship folks who were here before I was, uh, who've been in their role 30 years. And I think really that's part of our success. The fact that uh, we've been able to stand the test of time. We've developed relationships. We know the work. We know the mission. We know the provider's that's something that that takes a person three years to figure out. You know, you come in for a year, you're trying to figure out, figure your way. How do I get in? Who are my prospects? Who's in my portfolio? Year two, what is the program? My ask are going out. And then year three, you're making your exit. So definitely, I think growing up with the mission, understanding the vision, uh, being part of the clinical teams that are inspiring that vision. And getting to know the physicians has really, really, really helped advance the mission and the work. Do you have thoughts in general about this issue of longevity in the field of fundraising? Because it's it's different from institution type to institution type, but it's also it seems to be uh, a challenge throughout the field uh, globally about getting people to stick with the mission, as you say, and grow up with it. Well, I always like to say that all boats rise with the rising tide in terms of goals and performance. And, you know, we do keep a scorecard and we know where people have proposals and we're, we know what their portfolios look like and what they're personally producing. But I really have tried to challenge the team to not press so hard to secure the gift, but to really take your time and developing the relationship and developing the ask. It might take you longer than you anticipated, but the reward will be greater. And so if I'm having a successful year and we're on target and I know that my team is out working and they're, they're getting proposals lined up, I don't pressure so much on the individual goal and try to really take that strategy of these gifts take time and that all boats rise with the rising tide. If I'm having a great year, my team is going to have success in that. If they're having a great year, I'm going to have success in that. And that ultimately, we all will do well, but we have to be patient with ourselves and others. And so many, especially large institutions, I think you see it in healthcare. I think you see it in academia, where gift officers are really driven by the scorecard. 
And they are so pressed, even in the last month of the budget year, to get a gift on the board that maybe they're pushing people before they're completely ready. This is uh, also an issue of culture. It's not just of leadership, although it's interesting the way you've described this is a very disciplined approach. It, it also it helps to explain why you and your team have been so successful because of that discipline. But I, I'm interested to see if you can make a comparison maybe between smaller and larger institutions. You talked about needing to build that culture and grow uh, Norton as you've done with your team. Uh, when you were at another organization just immediately prior, that's a, probably a very different sort of culture, both the culture of philanthropy internally and externally. I wonder if there you were even talking about portfolio size and things of that nature or it, how you were approaching it then and what differences you see. Well, I mean, that really was a three person shop. I was one of the people I would have considered myself sort of the chief image maker and chief fundraiser of the nonprofit as the executive director. That was my role. And I had a development director and then a development coordinator who did the event work. The coordinator managed the events and did the data entry and a lot of the thank you notes and stewardship. And the director of development did more of the major gift work which the sizes of these gifts were much smaller too. I mean, we were talking about maybe a six or $7 million budget total. And then you would lay your grants on board and then your gap was what you would raise money for to try to get to a zero-based budget. And uh, so no, I mean, we would run libunts. You know, this is 20 years ago. We were running libunts and cybunts and I would call. I'm new in my role. I'd like to introduce myself. And and we just would grind the list. I mean, I felt like we really worked the list. And the vision was so big and that we were building houses and we were building employment programs. And we were changing the, the trajectory of people's lives who had been in shelter, who had been in abusive relationships and left seven and eight times. But the programming is what really drove philanthropy. And I think that's so important is sometimes we can get caught up in wanting the gift that we get out on a limb with things that maybe is not congruent with the needs and hopes of the system. So when you can engage leadership and build a strong case for support, I, I try to build a continuum of care across an, an issue and then build a workforce vision, a research vision and a facility vision so that I can go out and talk about the Cancer Institute or the neonatal intensive care unit. And you might be interested in building a developmental care model, or you might be interested in endowing a chair, or you might be interested in research. But if I've built that continuum in my mind, and I know what those three big buckets are, I can take you anywhere you want to be. And that has been a beautiful thing to be able to support the work and truly advance the mission of the organization and also help donors dreams come true in, in mirroring up the needs and, and desires of the organization with the needs and hopes of the donor. In listening to you talk about this, it's so clear that you not only execute, 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 which is so important in this work, but that you have this thought process, which goes very deep, but also long. And you have a language to describe all of it, which must work not only within your office with fellow colleagues in this field of fundraising and advancement, but with all the other people who don't really know fundraising very well. Um, 
it seems like education must be a big part of that. You, you've, for those who don't know you, you have a tremendous education and you've kept building that education over time, including a doctorate. How important is education for all of us in fundraising so that we not only have a way of understanding what we do and planning, but also communicating it to others that we need as our partners? Well, I think it's everything, right? It sets the tone for credibility. I, I pursued my CFRE when I came here to Norton Healthcare because I felt like as the chief development officer for a large health system, I, it was imperative that I would be CFRE. I did a fellowship with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which connected me to other health systems and nurses across the country. And that was very stimulating and inspiring to have a peer network. These jobs and leadership can be very lonely. And to have peers across the country was an important asset for me at that time when I was growing. Um, I have six CFREs on my team. I've had five local chapter presidents of the local Greater Louisville AFP chapter. I've had one AFP global president. I always send people to conference. Now, some years I can only send one. This past year, we had 12 people in New Orleans at conference. and. I think it's important not only to be learning and to sort of have that entrepreneurial spirit, but it's also affirming, like to hear things that we know we've done right, that it affirms and gives us confidence in who we are and what we do. Uh, so we're we're heavily engaged in the local chapter. We we want to speak and write and publish, and we have a young team of people, and they want to grow. They want to be stimulated. And I think those opportunities in education and scholarship are what help keep our people here. Do you mind if you take us back a little bit? You started, as you said, as a nurse and and you've kept your your uh, credential, obviously, as a as a registered nurse, among the many things that you have and you maintain and, and do. Um, a couple things. First of all, can you take us back on that journey so we know what led you into nursing and then how that informs what you do today? Uh, well, I grew up in a family that served uh, my my parents and my grandparents and all of my extended family was heavily involved in service to the community, either through volunteerism or through service type industries. And. At 18, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I landed in a two-year technical program, an associate's degree program in nursing. I graduated at the age of 20, and I started working 3 to 11 on the floors at Norton Children's Hospital. Oh. Mm -hmm. I went back. I still lived at home with my parents. I worked full-time on the evening shift, and I went back and got the plus two and finished and got my bachelor's of science. And at that point, I felt like I knew everything there was to know, right? I'm 22. I've got this bachelor's degree. I have two years of experience. Now I, I, I have the world by the tail. I moved to Philly. Uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is very research driven. One of the top three children's hospitals in the country year over year. Uh, different environment, a lot of doctorally prepared nurses at the bedside, uh, homesick for Kentucky, uh, moved back, came back to Children's and started pursuing my master's. I landed in a position at University Hospital, which was a Humana facility at the time. 
and got into a lot of training and development at Humana when Humana owned hospitals and they were doing total quality management. It was all TQM. Finished my master's, uh, went to another health system, Humana sold. They were then purchased by Columbia, and then they became Columbia HCA. It was a very tumultuous time in our city. I went to a small Catholic community-based facility and was really not a good cultural fit and saw this opportunity at Center for Women and Families. It was a leap of faith to go. And I think by virtue of default, they knew what they didn't want. They didn't want an attorney. They didn't want a social worker. They didn't want an internal candidate. They were looking for change and uh, had 11 interviews, went in there and did not know anything about fundraising, didn't know anything about leading a nonprofit and did not know much about family violence or sexual assault and built one of the top programs in the country and just exponentially raised money uh, and really found myself hand in glove with fundraising and working at the community level and doing really hard things. I built transitional housing, built two shelters, built employment programs, built a sane sexual assault nurse examiners program, brought a lot of knowledge from healthcare into the nonprofit sector. And then I was just approached by my boss. You know, he invited me to come up to Norton for lunch. And I thought that maybe they wanted to get more firmly involved in the work of the center. And basically, they started talking about their own internal assessment and their evaluation of the children's hospital and its philanthropy. And he invited me to take some materials home, which I did. And uh, six weeks later, I came back to giving my input and he basically offered me the role. And um, 20 years later, here I am. I thought it would be a three to five year adventure, but it has really been the journey of a lifetime. And I've kept my nursing license. Uh, I always say in case I have to fall back on it, but honestly, I love it so much. And my mentors in nursing would say once a nurse, always a nurse. And I just keep that credential. I think it's so important, that level of credibility and trust that I have as a nurse that I'm able to bring to the donor conversation. So I don't, I'm not perceived as a salesperson, which I think sometimes it's unfortunate that fundraisers get the reputation of being a salesperson. And don't get me wrong, I do believe that it is a real entrepreneurial spirit and almost a sales approach in terms of getting proposals out. But I think the level of trust and authenticity and understanding of the clinical programs really sets me apart. As you're talking about this, I, I wonder for others who don't come from that kind of background of a, a, a separate profession where they can lean into it because it allows them to talk about the work in a very authentic, meaningful way with prospective donors and others in the community. Um, if they can still use what they have in their life experience to engage with people in a meaningful way. And, and I'm wondering if, if you have any thoughts about others in fundraising so they don't feel, regardless of how they might be perceived, they don't feel like they're selling, but rather they feel like they're really talking with people where their heart is. I think just a connection to the mission. I, I mentioned at the conference, I think it's so important for professional fundraisers 
to find something that they love, that they believe in with all their heart and to stay with it. You know, you may have a child who had learning differences that took you to a a school that specializes in teaching children with learning differences, or you may have a sibling with some special need, Down syndrome, or maybe a childhood cancer, or you may have a parent that's first-generation education that led you into academic fundraising, that there's something in your heart that's brought you to this mission. And if you don't believe in it with all you have. I don't think that you can be as maybe at the maximum of your success. I think you can really maximize success if you can find something that you truly love and believe in. Um, This is often where I'd ask people what's next, but it sounds like the wrong question for you because you found the thing where you can keep giving and helping an organization to grow and fulfill its mission within the community. But as you look forward in it more generally for the field, perhaps what what's next? I am probably in the final chapters of my career here, you know, five to seven years, and I probably will be transitioning. I'm working really hard now on succession planning with my team and continuing to train and cultivate them. Uh, We have worked hard on diversity and inclusion. Our system created an Institute for Health Equity in 2019. And we have worked very hard uh, to meet the needs of parts of our community that have not had good access to care. Our boards are reflective of our community. I've worked for 13 years in building a diverse board, gender, age, race, ethnicity, geography, Uh, Now I am in the process of creating a philanthropy fellow as part of an advanced leadership experience here at Norton Healthcare. Uh, We have a a nationally recognized fellowship program for recent graduates that we do in our clinical effectiveness team and in our medical group. And these are two positions that we recruit from nationally. I've been able to work with the system so that we can add a philanthropy fellow for 2024. And we're working on the role description now, but my hope is to be able to attract a candidate that's a young professional that would come here, grow with our team, work with our team, do a special project for us, either with affinity groups or with training and development, and hopefully in two years, keep that person and then bring another fellow. Uh, But, you know, we are uh, one of the top 100, 100 integrated health systems in the country, these positions with Norton, uh, uh, we attract candidates from all over the country. And so I'm hoping that we can attract a philanthropy candidate that would come here and live and work and grow with our team. And I feel like that's part of giving back to the profession and that, you know, there are workforce challenges. Thankfully, I don't experience that because we always have our eye on that next person. We know when we are going to have turnover either through life experience of a relocation or a new baby, or maybe another opportunity in the system. And I actually have uh, people who've worked for me who are now in uh, work as physician liaisons or work in the volunteer office. And I love that when I can have someone who understands philanthropy that's working somewhere else in the system. That, That to me is a real win because it keeps pushing culture. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. 
Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.